Welcome back to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by LinkedIn Jobs and Privacy. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hey, uh, Stephen, how's it going? It's good, Jason. How are you today? Uh, doing fine. This is a very special time for all of us at Relay FM, um, and and so we're going to take an opportunity here to uh, tell you why right at the top of liftoff, Stephen. We want to tell people what what they can do and uh, how it will have an impact on your life and uh, also your co-founder Mike Hurley's life. Yes, absolutely. So if you go to our show notes, relay.fm/liftoff/157, the very top link. It's a very special link uh, because every September, and we're, it's almost September, on a fortnightly show, you only get so many weeks to talk about this, right? So we're claiming this is September for liftoff. All right. We uh, talk about and raise money for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And this is a institution, it's here in my hometown of Memphis, but they serve uh, families all over the world with uh, children who have cancer, a cancer diagnosis. And I was thinking about, you know, what we could talk about liftoff, you know, kind of a nerdy space scientific audience. And boy, we got a good we got a good one, don't we? We this do. Is a, the, the most tied into St. Jude liftoff is ever going to get. That's true. Unless they let us go to space, uh, you know, as part of Inspiration 4, which okay, they haven't emailed me back about that. So, you know, I still got a couple weeks. Maybe they'll sneak me in someone's baggage. Mm-hmm. But uh, St. Jude takes its research and its knowledge, and shares those things freely. And they inspire more collaboration between doctors and researchers worldwide, uh, more than really any other institution in this field. And as a result, there are more life-saving treatments for children everywhere because of the work done at St. Jude. They create more clinical trials for cancer than any other children's hospital, And they turn lab discoveries into life-saving treatments that benefit patients. In fact, and this is is really cool, I'm going to try to find some other links about this because I was reading about it and it really blew my mind. St. Jude was the first children's hospital to make a major investment in pediatric cancer genome sequencing, which resulted in this groundbreaking set of discoveries across several different childhood cancers. Before this project... Not even one pediatric cancer genome had been sequenced, but because of individuals like all of us donating to St. Jude, this groundbreaking research can continue. So my oldest son is a a cancer survivor, thanks to St. Jude, and on campus they have the statue. Uh, I mean, it looks like DNA, but it's, you know, it's about the genome project. And I've walked past it, you know, for 12 years on and off, and and you know sometimes you whatever you, yeah so the DNA statue, <laughs> and then you know you kind of you kind of get used to it, and then you read like oh my gosh like this had never been done before in the history of everywhere until Saint Jude did it, and Saint Jude could do it because of donations from regular people like me and you, Jason, and our listeners. So mm. if you go to stjude.org/relay, or again, that top link in the show notes this week, you can donate to St. Jude. We have a whole bunch of stuff coming up uh, this month. Uh, my co-founder, Mike Hurley, and I are going to do some live streams. We have a huge event on Friday, September 17th, a uh, big eight-hour live stream. And Jason, you're going to be involved with that too, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to do a game show 
uh, to be recorded, to be determined, but I will have a, a little game show with Relay FM hosts, um, as I did last year. It will be, I've made this promise to myself, not as intense technically as that was, uh, a little simpler, but we should have fun, and uh, that gives you guys a chance to do a little break in your in your live stream while we play the, the, the tape, essentially, of that game show. So you'll, you'll see me on there, and depending on scheduling, maybe I, I'll do my traditional pop-in at the beginning yeah. to introduce it, and and uh, all of that. I, I wish I could uh, come to Memphis uh, maybe next year. I know. We've talked about it. It's just it's not in the cards this year. No, and my, I, my wife has a big birthday this year, and, and her birthday is inconveniently um, right before the podcast-a-thon. Wow. So Man, if only her parents not a, had thought about that. You know, I know, right. It's, it's really... It's you know everything's coming up relay because my my son shares a birthday with relay so oh I think I knew that that's it's all connected <laughs> that's a different podcast yeah stjude.org slash relay go check it out I found a note uh, a link about the genome project and that page has the picture of the statue I'm talking about so my kids have like run around the base of it forever and now I know a lot more about it mm-hmm. so space stuff. Jason. Yeah. I mean, other than St. Jude sending people to space. There is that, that, that going on. We, we have that. That's a good yeah. one. But, but there is, this is a podcast that is not just about St. Jude, but also about space. Yeah. And in this case, something that's not ready to go to space quite yet. Yeah. There's going to be a theme. This is sort of a not going to space podcast this time. <laughs> um, we told you about the Starliner, which is Boeing's contribution to the commercial crew program. Of course, SpaceX has the Dragon, Boeing has the Starliner. They're both meant to be uh, private endeavors that NASA will buy seats on, that NASA has funded in order to get uh, astronauts up to the International Space Station. And, la- and, and we had the year of commercial crew with the Dragon and uh, crew, is it crew two? And the th- it's the third mission, but it's Crew 2 is at the ISS right now. But Starliner, I mean, I, I guess this is why you do two. I said this last time. It's great to have two options in case one doesn't make it. As you, as you may remember from last time, Starliner rolled out to the launch pad, and then they had technical problems, and they rolled it back. They still couldn't fix it. They had to take it off the Atlas V rocket that it was sitting on top of, return it to the processing facility, and try to figure out what's wrong with its valves that have been stuck open. Um, and they close some of them, but not others of them. And there's like moisture ingress. That's a possibility with it. It's not great, but Mm-mm. basically the short version of this is given all the other things that are going on and all the traffic at the international space station, which we've detailed in past episodes, it really might not even get its test flight off this second test flight until 2022. And it certainly will be at least 2022 until Starliner is capable of carrying people since it has to do this test yeah. first. And remember, Stephen, this is the test that some people were sort of like saying, well, you know, I know the first test failed um, because it, it, you know, it had all those issues and had to come back early and all of that and couldn't go to the ISS and any of that. It's like, but, but maybe we don't need to do another test. And you and I both said, I think another test is probably warranted here. And everybody <laughs> yeah. sort of agreed. And then here we are where they can't even get the test off. So mm-hmm. um, it's a tough situation for Boeing. Boeing has had a really rotten few years I- across their whole business. Yeah. Uh, and this <laughs> is contributing to that uh, continuing, essentially. So um, at least the Dragon is working. Yeah, which is good. And I saw that the uh, the Atlas rocket that was going to be used for this has been reassigned. 
because uh, it was already down there. So they've yeah, oh man. <laughs> unmating Starliner and sending it sending it back. I got a rocket sitting here. Uh, who? What's our next launch? Next? Yeah, next? Next? Oh, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Anybody need a rocket? <laughs> yeah. So we'll continue to follow this. Clearly, the second flight was was necessary. And if uh, they'll get another shot of this, you know, if they get all this this panned out, uh, we'll see them stand this thing up again. But I suspect it'll be a little while. Yeah. Seems like. Oh well. Hey, better finding out on the ground than in orbit. Mm-hmm. We also spoke last time about Perseverance, NASA's most recent rover on Mars, and how its first sample tube came back empty. So it goes around, it drills, makes these core drill samples, pulls them up into a sample tube, and then it can be analyzed, and then they're going to be dropped off for a later mission to return them to Earth. And we spoke last time uh, that the that first sample tube sh- showed up empty, which is nothing that's ever happened before uh, on Mars or in testing. And we spoke about, hey, they're going to use the camera on the end of the arm to get close-up images of the hole drilled by Perseverance and try to understand what's going on. And we spoke last time that the prevailing theory was whatever material it drilled into was just not really suited for this particular uh, collection method. Right. And uh, it seems like that's what's happened. Uh, There's some photos in the show notes, and you can see that this is not like solid mass. It is very fine, dusty material. And Mm -hmm. if you look at this picture where the camera is looking down the hole, there's a pile of it (laughs) at the bottom of the hole. And their thought is that's where it actually came out of the sample tube, that this wasn't dense enough to stick together to be scooped up um, it's kind of, it's like the inside out problem that they had with the, uh, the insight lander trying to dig down with the mole and the ground basically was made up of material that it really wasn't designed for. So hopefully this is just, oh, bad luck. The first place we went just was really not suited for this sort of work. And so they are moving on to a second location, uh, named Citadel. And hopefully that will be, uh, a better fit, and this will just be a, you know a little hiccup, and hopefully, what's a really long, successful mission. Maybe this doesn't happen on Earth so much, but like the highly compressed material that looks like it's solid, but you know it's actually a kind of a, a powder in suspension, you know, by pressure or liquid or whatever. Like something about this material uh, made it, uh, you know, fall apart. Mm-hmm. So the, I I'm pretty sure that all of Mars is not a powder. No. <laughs> <laughs> there are probably real rocks there too. So yeah. just keep on keep on looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and being able to to follow up on this uh is possible because of the advanced cameras on this rover. And as that technology has gotten better, we saw the same thing with Insight. We can get images of what's actually going on, as opposed to just trying to replicate the results here on Earth. We now have photographic pretty good photographic evidence of of what's happening and that's something that right. didn't have on past rovers to the same degree we have now and so I, I i feel like in reading this and seeing some tweets about it from people it seems like this is pretty much what happened and they don't really foresee this being an issue at future sites and um just a a quick update uh, if people are wondering about mars helicopter news yes always basically the helicopter is uh, around it's still being used 
it's it, it I think since we last spoke about it, it flew another very long mission over rougher terrain than it was designed to do. And essentially this is these are great data points in terms of knowing how long this thing could last because although we have a lot of history on Mars of uh, rovers being, you know, sent on a three month mission and lasting for five years, that kind of thing, right? I get the impression that the people in charge of the helicopter, did not think it was going to last very long <laughs> or certainly did not want to promise it, but it's done really well. And now it is in this secondary mission as a scout for perseverance. And it's, uh, you know, it's doing its thing. So it's flying around and, and imaging things that are inaccessible and also scouting ahead for perseverance. And it's, I think Stephen, uh, tell me what you think about this, but I, I really am getting the sense that now that this has happened, I am skeptical if any future Mars missions will lack uh, something like a, a, a an aerial vehicle yeah. as a scout or as a an explorer or like it's it for what it cost and for what it weighs like having that mobility and proving that it works it's a it's a pretty huge deal I I, I think because of the limitations of a device like that you're always going to want to have a uh, base station or a rover but having this tool on Mars, on a planet with enough atmosphere to to support this sort of thing, it's it's revolutionary, really. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a dozen flights for something that really was talked about, hey, we may get a couple out of this thing. It is a tech demo. Yeah. I feel like this technology is definitely going to get an upgrade to sort of mission status. And I, I absolutely agree with you that I think moving forward, this is going to become a pretty common tool in yeah. Martian robotic missions. So I, lo I looked it up. It's a dozen flights now. As of August 16th, yeah. uh, Ingenuity has made 12 separate flights, its most recent one being almost three minutes long, uh, reconning uh, and ta taking pictures and reconning an area where they might want to uh, steer Perseverance. Yeah, and they're doing 3D imagery with it so they can really plot out where Perseverance can safely be driven. Right. You don't want to... Uh, I mean, this is how it's been until now. You know, you're driving your rover into areas that are, are mapped out by satellite, but that's a lot different than having a helicopter yeah. fly pretty low across the terrain to see what's there. Better resolution if you're floating right above it instead of orbiting way, way above it, even though the the quality of the imagery from satellites around Mars is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as having basically um, somebody on the ground or very close to the ground taking pictures of, of where you're going. So yeah, that's just yeah. just a, a really quick update that, that um, it's still going great. And, you know, at some point it's going to conk out and that'll be the end of it. But, like, they are um, not only showing the utility of this thing in a way that they really didn't. Like, what a tech demo, I guess, is what I'm saying. Is This is this is a, a become a, a fantastic tech demo, not just because it's a, a, a great stunt to have a flying thing on Mars, but that you can see the utility of this because there's only so fast that a rover can go. And there are places that rovers can't go. And... Rover wants a little buddy too. It's helpful to have that little buddy there telling him uh, what to what to uh, what to expect next. It's great. Yeah, it's really exciting to see it. Uh, this caught my eye, and I think we spoke about this when uh, this launched. But uh, Millennium Space, which is a a Boeing owned company, little startup within Boeing, I guess, uh, 
they launched in November on a Rocket Lab Electron with a a proof of concept flight including that included two CubeSats. And their thing is we want to find a way to more reliably and safely deorbit satellites at the end of their lifespan. How it's generally done now is one of three ways. Uh, one of three things happen, I should say, when a, when a satellite reaches the end of its mission. Uh, sometimes they have a burn and put it way up high, like in geostationary orbit, so it's basically out of the way. They can deorbit it using the thrusters on the, the satellite. So basically go up or go down. If you go down, you deorbit and, and burn up. And then sometimes they just get left where they are. And that's not a sustainable uh, situation. If you look at uh, things like the number of objects tracked in low Earth orbit, the number gets bigger and bigger. And so Millennium Space is looking at this, trying to come up with a way to make it easier to deorbit uh, at the end of, of your mission. So uh, what they have come up with is basically a 70-meter-long deployable tether. And uh, what this what this mission had is one CubeSat just went up like normal, and it'll take, uh, I think they said seven years to uh, deorbit that CubeSat, just the natural decay of its orbit. But with this deployable tether... They uh, they let it, they let it out. So you have a seventy meter tail, basically dragging be, dragging on the atmosphere behind the CubeSat, and that acts basically like a like a brake, picking up friction from the atmosphere. And they were able to bring it down within just eight months, and they were able to do it without needing any thrusters, any fuel, any of those complicated things, because. This, uh, the mechanism to release this is extremely simple and extremely reliable. And so they are working on this system that they say can scale up to much larger satellites. I mean, a CubeSat's small. You can put it in your backpack. But moving to much bigger things with longer and heavier tethers, being able to slow down satellites with drag and then eventually drop them out of orbit in a way that once this is deployed, it's inevitable that it will come down. There's no real mystery in that. And I just thought it was, uh, uh, when we talked about it before, and, and, and now it struck me again that sometimes these solutions can be pretty simple. Yeah. And it being <laughs> eight months versus seven years to deorbit something really caught my eye. And I wonder, like, what you what you think about this? Yeah, I think it's really amazing. Um, we've been talking about this a little bit. So we started this podcast in 2015. This is basically the sixth anniversary of liftoff, which is kind of amazing. Oh, happy anniversary. And yes, happy anniversary to you too. Uh, surprise. And what'd you get me? Um, a tether. Okay, good. It's Steven, this is a roll of tape. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, that's essentially, uh, this is how this thing has been described is it's kind of like a roll of tape and mm -hmm. you roll it out and you have a big long thing of tape behind but like talking about space for six years with you one of the things that has come up again and again is the importance of access to space and low-cost access to space and access to space by groups that are not necessarily in the big uh, government space structure whether it's nasa and other government space agencies or whether it's military agencies so you've got this case where this is a this is a big player right because they're owned by boeing but you see a lot of these. There's the um, 
there's the test that's going on that I think we've talked about that with the uh, the solar uh, power satellite that they're doing a test about being able to beam down power from space to Earth. Like there are a bunch of these things that are theoretical, but you need to try them. Mm-hmm. You need to see if if they can work. Um, and we're seeing in the last six years, we've seen so many of these things that have always been part of science fiction turn into something that people are actually going to try. So in this case, so they said, what if we increase the drag through some deployable object when we're ready to deorbit this thing? And I look at this and think, oh my, oh my God, like this is such a great method to either build in this capability to satellites or uh to you know have uh, another satellite come up to them and you know stick <laughs> stick it on and say here's your tape buddy and then there are other we also have talked about the the repair satellites and their and deorbiting satellites that we've seen that their whole idea is to grab a hold of another satellite and move it to a different orbit or move it to a parking orbit or even deorbit it um, like there's just so much activity going on and things that have been talked about, I think for a long time, but that nobody actually was able to uh, kind of like get everything together to test. And because these are CubeSats and they did the two different ones, so relatively cheap to do this in space terms and kind of proved the viability of this as a concept. It's very exciting. Yeah. I mean, the, the combination of CubeSats and Rocket Lab's electron launch vehicle really jumped out at me as... Yep. Oh, this brings the cost for experimentation down. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge... I feel like this is the story of space in the era that we are currently in, which is th- the whole idea here is to reduce the price of access to space. And that comes in a bunch of forms, right? It's it's small launchers and low-cost reusable launchers, but it's also the tech that uh, you know really has emerged, especially from the mobile device revolution, where you've got powerful, small, energy-efficient tech that you can use to build things like CubeSats fairly cheaply that are fairly powerful. So all of that is going on in here. Uh, so a great little story that I think also is, is sort of a perfect uh, kind of story, like the kind of stories we've been telling for the last six years here. And uh, it's, it's fun. It's very exciting. So tell me about uh, what we're calling uh, Soupy Saturn. Soupy Saturn? Soupy Saturn. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if Soupy... I, I think it's more slushy. Slushy it's Saturn. More like, a, like, okay. like a slushy Saturn. <laughs> so this is a fun <laughs> new study. Uh, it's using data actually from the Cassini mission, That's which cool. is over, that looked at Saturn's rings. And they, what they're trying to do is measure the oscillations in Saturn's rings which there was like a seismometer, essentially, kind of this idea of you're, you're looking at the waves, the oscillations in the rings, and they're caused by Saturn's gravity. And the idea there is, what does that tell us? Can you build a model that tells us, like, what would Saturn's interior, which we can't see way down in the, you know, beneath the clouds, what can that tell us about Saturn's interior? Can we build a model that reflects the oscillations that we see in the rings and so use that to learn something about what's happening way down in the interior of Saturn. And the result is that this new study suggests that Saturn may may very well have a diffuse core structure, uh, which is another way of saying that under that gassy shell, it does not have sort of what we've always envisioned as happening at the core of a gas giant, which is just a solid rocky core with some, you know, hydrogen and helium around it. But 
a slushy mess. Like they say there's no tidy boundary between heavier rocks and ice and lighter elements like hydrogen and helium under pressure. Instead, it's all just kind of oscillating around and mushy. It's a big, mushy, slushy ball (laughs) at the center of Saturn. Um, to the point where if you can, if you can imagine this thing kind of like vibrating and oscillating, uh, what they say is it essentially rings like a bell at all times. Saturn is kind of going, that's just with all of that goo in the center there, kind of like vibrating and, and mushing around. Um, and keep in mind though, that although I just called Saturn a slushy, the core of Saturn is 17 times the mass of the entire earth. <laughs> So it's a big slushy. Yeah, it's a it's a really big slushy. Um, and and fun to think also that this is Saturn, but they think that it, it possibly is also true of Jupiter. Jupiter obviously has more mass, but mm-hmm. and uh, Jupiter's rings are not like Saturn's rings in terms of observation. But they want to see if there's other ways to quantify the uh, the data of what we know about Jupiter to see if Jupiter's oscillations may lead us to change how we think of uh, Jupiter's core and in general. Um, how we view our our models of how gas giants are formed and what they're formed out of, and also even like how the heat output works. like are they are they hotter or colder uh, than we would expect because of the fact that they're not solid, but they're actually diffuse. There's a lot to learn here. So just a, a one little uh, step along the way to knowing more about how uh, gas giants work. And we spoke in 2017 at the end of Cassini saying this data will be, the the research and the development of this data will take years, right? So this is now four years after Cassini right. was ditched into Saturn, and we are still learning about what it collected. It's in the slushy now. It's in the slushy now. <laughs> that makes me feel better, you know, a little bit. I mean, it didn't survive very far into the atmosphere, but, you know, could be slushing around in there. Those atoms got to go somewhere. It gets compressed into like a ball and then it goes down into the slushy. Yeah. Might be. Could be. Well, let's uh, let's take a break and then get into some Artemis stuff. Oh boy, yeah, let's do it. This episode of Liftoff is made possible by LinkedIn Jobs. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing the wrong candidates for a job opening could be time better spent growing your business. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster, and it's free. I've done a bunch of hiring in my day, and it really is time-consuming. You get a bunch of resumes. You have to sort through them. You're trying to understand, get a feel for somebody based on the typeset they use and their cover letter. It's it's so hard. And you got to make sure you get the right person, especially in a small business. But with LinkedIn Jobs, you can create a free job posting in minutes to reach your network. And then beyond your network to the world's largest professional network of over 750 million people. Focus on the candidates with the skills and experience you need. You can use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. And then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? So post your job for free and get it in front of them at linkedin.com slash liftoff. That's linkedin.com slash liftoff to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to LinkedIn Jobs for their support of the show and Relay FM. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the SLS segment. Space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news and trivia. And for the SLS segment, your host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Oh, thank you, Jason. Oh, what a Yay! welcome. Thank you. Oh, take a seat, everybody. SLS segment. I call this the Artemis One booster gets taller and taller. <laughs> it's uh, It's growing. It's getting closer to space. It is. I mean, it will be much closer to space at some point soon-ish. Anyways, the Artemis One rocket does continue to take shape. So at the very tippy top of the rocket, you have the launch abort tower. So if you're any sort of space enthusiast, you're going to recognize those three words in that order. That's what's at the top of basically every capsule system. So the top of, of Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo on top of the Soyuz capsule and it is a set of abort motors that can pull the capsule away from a rocket if something is mm-hmm. going south. And we saw this in action, was it last year or 2019 with Soyuz, where they had to separate and get pulled away? Right. A very important piece in terms of astronaut and crew safety, something the shuttle famously did not have. Right. And this is the thing that they that uh, slowed the development of Crew Dragon for a while because they had to come up with their whole crew abort system yeah. uh, built into the capsule. And they had the one that exploded because they were working on that. But um, it's the same principle, right? Is that unlike the space shuttle, what you really want is if you're sitting on top of a big rocket, you want the ability to basically pull the uh, people away from the rocket in the case of an emergency. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somewhere on top, but you, like you said, the crew dragon that's built into the capsule itself. So with Artemis and the Orion capsule, it sits on top in the traditional place, and it has now been attached to the top of the Orion capsule for the Artemis 1 launch. And you may think, Stephen, there's not people in Artemis 1. Why do you need to launch a Bort tower? Well, one, you need it because the rocket and all the software written for it expects it to be there. But in this case, it will be... Uh, basically just the tower and the motors will not be active. Uh, There's not a reason to pull away for an uncrewed flight test. Now, the the launch abort tower for Orion has been tested independently, but uh, for this, they're not going to arm it. And so it is now uh, attached. I assume they use some sort of industrial strength Velcro for that. Uh, Probably some exploding Mm, bolts maybe in there too. And uh, now it will all get lifted and put on top of the the core stage and the uh, the upper stage and the the inner stage. All that, all those stacking elements keeps getting taller and taller in the vehicle assembly building. Uh, they also have left while they're at the top of the stack. Uh, will attach lightweight fairings, and th- so this shields the crew module uh, from the vibration and sound it will experience during launch so it's a it's a cover that goes over the capsule and then that gets that gets pulled away after launch so uh big things happening at the tiny top of the rocket uh, i like for there to be progress progress is good progress is good i mean i hate to jinx it but uh so far it seems like integration at the vehicle assembly building has gone pretty smoothly yeah it's good it's good i like it this knock, is this is a, a, a a very cha- big change from our uh, previous SLS segments where, where we've had a whole series of, of things showing progress. Like it. Uh, and Artemis 2 is right behind us. So this is the first crewed flight 
of the Artemis program if everything goes well with Artemis 1. And the uh, interim uh, propulsion stage, ICPS, that has all shown up. So if you think about SLS, you have the core stage, which is what was fired at Stennis. Then you have an interstage adapter, and then you have the uh, this upper stage. It just has a single RL-10 engine. In later versions of the SLS, that's going to be upgraded to something more powerful. But for this, the, this is enough. That is now in Florida. Uh, it is at a Boeing facility uh, getting checked out, but it will eventually be then transported to Kennedy Space Center for launch preparation and awaiting its other classmates to go to space as part of Artemis II. Nice. So, yeah, Artemis II just uh, nipping on the hills. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about how the core stage is starting to take shape, so they are they are rolling uh, through these future vehicles. And hopefully the the growing pains that were experienced as part of the Artemis One SLS build don't, uh, don't take place this time. It took a decade to build the first one. Hopefully it goes faster the second time. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. This is good. All good. Yeah, good stuff. So we did the uh, the SLS segment, but we I called this the space law segment, but you didn't. Yeah, there's more than just law going on in here, unfortunately. But this is it's almost like the you we have the positivity in the space law seg or in the SLS segment. Sorry, the negativity follows in the Artemis receding segment <laughs> that is to come. Okay, uh, well, let's take our second break and then we'll get into that. Okay. This episode of Liftoff is also brought to you by Privacy.com. Privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial life online while keeping your most important information secure. By generating virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information, so you don't have to worry about giving out to people you don't know online. We've all been in that position, right? You're trying to make a purchase, and the only place is some sketchy website that looks like Maybe it was last updated in 1996, or you just feel uncomfortable about it for some reason. Well, with privacy, your real card numbers don't have to go into that website because you can make virtual ones. And this gives you all sorts of control. So you can say, hey, you can only charge my card one time or only for this amount. Or if it's a repeating charge, you can only charge me once a month. You can't charge me every other Thursday. I'm going to know about it. And of course, you can close cards at any time if a problem does spring up. Plus, you can make sure you're never accidentally built twice or upgraded to another service without your consent. It puts you in control of your online payments. Privacy is partnered with the good people over at 1Password. So if you're a 1Password user, you can just create, use, and save privacy cards directly from within 1Password. They have the same security benefits as all the other privacy cards. So you can set spending limits, create single-use or even merchant lock cards whenever you want. This is the card I only use at this merchant, for example. So head on over to privacy.com slash liftoff and sign up for an account. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase. That's privacy.com slash liftoff to sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of the show and Relay FM. All right, so you heard the bad news. Right, you heard the good news. Now, now it's time for the bad news. It's like the you were the you, Stephen. You got to be the, uh, the positive one. Mm. And I have to be the negative one. Okay. Okay. So what's going on? Uh, two things that will lead to Artemis receding further into the distance, or perhaps it would be more fair to say, um, making it clearer that a moon landing is not going to happen in 2024, which we already knew, but now everything is piling on. So first. Here's your space law. 
sort of. It's not really space law, though. It's like ground law. Space lawsuit. This is why I, yeah, it's a space-related lawsuit, but it isn't happening in space, so I feel like maybe the space law segment shouldn't apply here, hmm. which is one of the reasons I changed it. Um, so Blue Origin, we've been talking about Blue Origin being really unhappy. This is Jeff Bezos's company. Uh, unhappy about NASA awarding SpaceX the first uh, you know, human landing system for the moon for, for the first human landing on the moon uh, as a part of the Artemis program. And they appealed to the uh, General Accounting Office of the government and said that this was unfair. And the GAO re responded, as we told you, I think, last time, saying, no, it's fine. We find nothing wrong with this. And so now, having lost that appeal, Blue Origin is suing NASA in court, claiming that the whole process that led to SpaceX being chosen was improper. There was an interesting thing that happened, though, which is that NASA, SpaceX, and Blue Origin then announced that they've all agreed to what they call an expedited litigation schedule hmm. for the lawsuit. So basically, in return for Blue Origin agreeing that they're going to wrap this whole legal proceeding up by November 1st, NASA has directed SpaceX to pause work on the human landing system. Now, what that means in in reality, I'm unclear about because so much of SpaceX's development continues because SpaceX is developing Starship regardless. So I'm not sure if a whole lot of work at SpaceX, I'm sure there's some, but I'm not sure that a whole lot of SpaceX work is going to pause. But technically, the part that is part of the human landing system is going to pause until November 1st. And this... It seems like a good choice, right? The idea here is that they're going to get it out of the way in the next couple of months and they can resolve this issue and move on. Um, but I think that's interesting that NASA basically cut a deal with Blue Origin. And and I think you could look at this and say Blue Origin is suing NASA. That's not great for Blue Origin's relationship with the government. And I think there's some truth in that, although Blue Origin also has its fans in Congress. Um, so it's not as cut and dried as all that. But I think what is interesting is Blue Origin is still trying to kind of play ball with NASA and is aware mm -hmm. that they don't they're not trying to inflict the most harm on NASA by dragging this out. So they they agreed to do this fast because they just want to be heard. And uh, and so they will be heard uh, by November 1st. And in the meantime, like I said, probably not the biggest thing to give away to pause the HLS work, but it will slow down the HLS at least by by some given that uh, the work is paused for now yeah because there's funding and all sorts of stuff tied up and we just don't know how dependent spacex is on that funding for the level of work they have to do right now yeah yeah exactly i and i doubt i mean they they've been doing so much work on on starship anyway that 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 work you know continues yeah and uh yeah so this will be interesting to see how this resolves and we'll find out pretty soon the other piece of news is about spacesuits. Oh, boy. Uh, so, like I said earlier, we already knew that November 2024 was not a realistic target for a moon landing um, and that it was sort of tied to the end of what was going to be Donald Trump's second term and they wanted to make this, you know, the whole thing with P Mike Pence was like, we're going to do this and before Trump leaves office in 2024, we're going to land on the moon. And uh, uh, the second term didn't happen and uh, this thing is not going to happen. Uh, but NASA has basically, as we've covered here a few times, not really talked about changing the date. They're just sort of letting it lay there. Yeah. Um, it, and it, it sort of seems prudent, right? Like they don't have a new date. So why go to the rigmarole of declaring the old date dead when everybody already knows it's kind of not realistic and never was? 
and they don't have a new date yet. They don't have a new story to tell. So why tell any story at all? I think. Yeah. I mean, I think we spoke about this last time. Like the second you say 2024 is not happening, that becomes the news, right? And instead of talking about the progress you are making, even if that date isn't right, really in target insight anymore. Yeah. That all said, we are now starting to see very clear signs that that timeline is not happening that are official. In addition to the pause on the HLS that we just talked about, we've also uh, got a report out from the NASA Office of Inspector General that declares the new spacesuits needed for lunar EVAs won't be ready until April 2025 at the earliest. Can't You could go to the moon without them, but you can't get out and look around, which is sort of the point. Um, the report makes it clear that the whole 2024 deadline is not feasible. And in a, uh, a true way of calling it like it is, the OIG report continues, quote, Moreover, delays related to lunar lander development will also preclude a 2024 landing. So the OIG is saying it's not just the spacesuits, it's also the lander. It's not going to happen. We all knew it, but uh, it's nice that there's somebody who's being clear about it. Uh, We don't know when the moon landing uh, as a part of Artemis will happen, but it's not going to be 2024. I would say always bet the over. It's probably not 2025 either, but we don't know when. We don't know what the plan is. And I think we're not going to probably hear until we know more about how the Artemis uh, test missions with the SLS are doing and we get the whole um, lunar lander situation resolved. So maybe by the end of this year, NASA will have a better sense or early next year. My guess would be like maybe after Artemis 1 and they do that test, maybe then they say, okay, here's what what's going to happen next. Somewhere, you know, end of this year or beginning of next year. Yeah, we spoke about this, the suit in particular last time about the, the many different vendors involved. And Elon Musk is like, seems like there's too many cooks in the kitchen, which is a tweet that really uh, sort of cracks me up. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the space suits are a problem. The lander's a problem. SLS is a problem. Like there's there's a lot of things that really have to go right from here on out. And even if they all did, is there enough time left on the the calendar? Probably not. And it, without any one of those things, like uh, what are you going to do? Like set a human lander down but not open the door? I mean, it, the thing falls apart without all these pieces. We're, we're just running a remote control of a rover from inside the... No, it doesn't happen. That'd be a so. bummer. Yeah, so we'll we'll uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, as always, we're gonna follow this stuff for for all of you listeners. Uh, but that would be my guess is that is that they will eventually have a, a put a date on this again. But um, if I were them, I would want a successful Artemis one and then use that as a way of rolling out. You know, you want a good. You want some good news and a good reason to like put the stake in the ground and say, okay, this is really happening. And Artemis 1 launching would be a perfect time to do that, assuming that it goes well. Say, all right, we did it, and uh, and here's the here, and we've got the lunar lander stuff resolved, and here's our plan. And they are going to have to do that at some point, but I think it's okay that they haven't done it yet, because I think they don't know. And why set a date that you may have to change in six months? Um, wait a little bit. It, it, I think it always works. This is the un-Elon Musk approach. Right. Elon Musk would say, well, we're actually going to do it uh, next year. 
<laughs> but but NASA's not going to do that. So so we'll we'll get a date from them when they feel a little bit better about it and think that they can roll it out as something that seems like good news. Yeah, I think I, I hadn't really considered like when would be the time to do it, but that makes a ton of sense to me. Hey, we're coming off the successful flight. We have these coming up. This is kind of right. the timetable. If Artemis 1 has a successful launch, the obvious question is going to be what's next. And that's when you walk into the room, if you're Bill Nelson, and you say, mm-hmm. here's what's next. You know, we, we succeeded with this. We're on to Artemis 2. Then it's going to be Artemis 3. We're going to do it in this way. This is the timeline. This is what we're planning. You do it, you do it then, not yep. as part of a press release that admits that your old target is, uh, is not going to happen, right? That's not, that's not a great time to do it. Just from a PR standpoint, that's my guess. Yep. And as we've talked about many times, space agencies deal in PR. I mean, it's just the way it is. Yeah. It's politics, politics and PR like NASA. NASA wants the public to be engaged. This is the whole thing. NASA wants the public to engage with space because that's how Congress um, feels like it. they're not going to get dinged by giving money to NASA. It's all part of this kind of whole. And NASA's generally been pretty good for much of its existence anyway at at doing PR. Um, and they uh, they still are are they do an okay job with it. So, you know, I think that that has to be part of the consideration because that's how they get their money. I think that does it, Jason. I think so. That's a good, good fortnight. Lots of, uh, lots of updates. Uh, some, some, the good news, the bad news, it's all, it's all working out. The good, the bad, and the slushy, as they say. And the slushy. Yeah, that's <laughs> what they say. If you want to learn more about the stories we spoke about, head on over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash one five seven. You'll find the show notes there. Uh, you can also go learn more and donate. Please donate at stjude.org slash relay. St. Jude is in the business of finding cures and saving children. You can find Jason and, and I... And sending people to space, don't forget. And sending, also sending people to sending space. Sending people to space. Yeah, Inspiration4. We'll be talking about that probably the next yeah. episode. Uh-huh. You can find us on Twitter as well. Jason is there as Snell, And you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Stay slushy, everyone. (laughs) Bye, y'all.